0: For the first time, if you haven't met, my name's Jamie. Um, I am the guy who gets the privilege, the honor of unpacking God's Word with us as we gather most weeks in this place, and we'll do that in just a second. Um, If you're joining us for the first time, we are currently working our way through the book of Acts, which is one of the most fascinating books of the Bible. If you've never read it, uh, I would encourage you as an exercise this week just to go carve out maybe about an hour or so. That should be roughly about the amount of time it would take you. And just read it from start to finish. Just give it one one go from beginning to end. If you have read it but you've never read it that way, you should you should go and and, and read it in that regard. Like watching a movie, it'd be really hard to commit yourself to a two hour film and Uh, break that up into five-minute snippets over the course of, you know, several months and assume that you understood the bigger storyline of of what's being told, right? We like to watch movies from start to finish, and so that'd be something that I would uh, commend to you if you've never done that with this book of the Bible, being that it is a narrative, be really helpful. Um, We've entitled this series Witnesses I mentioned this at the beginning of the series a couple of months ago. The reason that we came up with that sermon series title is that the word witnesses has a twofold meaning, and it's one that carries throughout the course of the book of Acts from beginning to end, as we see many people not only witness God's goodness, glory, and grace with their very own eyes, but also bear witness to God's goodness, glory, and grace in the advancement of the gospel. We'll see that even again this morning, that God has always been pleased to display his glory to his people and through his people, and we see both in the book of Acts. It's the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. This morning, the adventure continues as the gospel goes forth into Samaria, the home of Simon the magician. Yes, this is going to be exciting. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll pick up the story in verse 4 you don't have a bible there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you Uh, feel free to take that with you if you don't own a bible um, as the church's gift to you as you're even flipping let me let me just go and pray for our time in god's word this morning god the book of acts is an incredibly fascinating narrative And it's a narrative that's a part of a greater meta-narrative, a story of redemption that you've had in mind before you ever even created the stage upon which this redemptive divine drama would even play out. It's amazing to think about. The story's not over. It's a story that we're a part of this morning. It's a story that you continue to tell and continue to invite people in to participate in telling. And it's a story that We'll end in one of the most glorious, happily ever afters that the world has ever known, Jesus, when you return to set all things right and to invite your people into eternal bliss with you at the center of the new Jerusalem. Holy Spirit, you're a part of this story as well. Jesus, you sent the Spirit in the wake of your ascension to the right hand of the Father, We see the Spirit in power at work in the book of Acts. It's the same Holy Spirit this morning who opens our eyes in this very room to see the beauty of Your Word, Lord. The beauty of Your Gospel. It's the same Holy Spirit who awakens our slumbering hearts 2,000 years later in this makeshift auditorium. Spirit of God, would You do that? Otherwise, it's just a, a man functioning in his own power, trying to unpack words that are empty of power in the hearts of people receiving them. We're desperate for you, Holy Spirit. So would you move now mightily in our midst for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name that I pray it. Amen. So picking out the story where we left off last week, if you missed last week, Stephen has just been stoned to death for shining the light of the gospel into the the darkness of religiosity, the first post-resurrection Christian martyr that we have on record, murdered right outside the city of Jerusalem. In the wake of Stephen's martyrdom, the church is no longer able to meet in a concentrated area. They're forced to to scatter into smaller gatherings, which actually ends up being a catalyst for the advancement of the gospel. As the gospel begins to go forth throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said it would back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Here's something really incredible to think about. You go back to last week Stephen's speech. Stephen had declared to the religious leaders one of the things that he declared was that God's presence cannot be confined to a place nor can it be confined to a building. We we see The religious leaders proceed to martyr Stephen, and the result is that the gospel is no longer confined to Jerusalem and the temple area as Christians now begin to scatter in the wake of persecution so that the religious leaders, oblivious to the fact that they're doing it, actually end up participating in proving Stephen's speech to be true. Isn't that amazing? That's the irony of God. Everything up to this point in the book of Acts has been confined to the temple of God in the city of God. Now the gospel starts to spread So that in the words of one scholar, Jesus' followers leave the city of Jerusalem not as refugees, but as missionaries. Picking up the story in verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. That... Jesus had said to the apostles, going back to Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's happening right here in Acts chapter eight, not in the midst of everything going well, rather in the midst of great persecution and, and upheaval. Going back to last week, the suffering of the saints is the seed of the church. That One of the most famous examples that I can think of that comes to mind is going back to 1949, the communist takeover of China. There were a number of Christian missionaries that were expelled from the, the concentrated areas where they were doing work so that it appeared that the church had lost but But, what happened is that the expelled missionaries um, ended up going to other parts of Asia and spreading the gospel further to a number of unreached people groups. Not only that, the Christian churches that had been established in those Areas by those missionaries before they were scattered. They were taken over by Chinese Christians who became leaders in those churches. And because those leaders were indigenous to the people, understanding their very own culture and the nuances of it, the church actually experienced greater growth than it did before any of those missionaries were expelled from those areas. So that the Christian presence in China is now 30 to 40 times larger than it was in 1949. Incredible. Or how about something a little more recent and closer to home? I don't know about you, but I've already heard numerous stories in which the gospel is spreading in the wake of the devastation of Hurricane Michael. Anyone have a story related to that? Um, one of my pastor buddies down in South Georgia, they got hit pretty hard by Hurricane Michael He was telling me a couple weeks ago that um, he has a Muslim neighbor that he's never really been able to uh, find a way to talk about Jesus with. And in the wake of the hurricane a couple weeks ago, all of a sudden they're sharing tools and equipment with each other, helping to carry trees off of each other's property. And in the midst of that time together, all of a sudden they're having conversations not just about the character and nature of God in the wake of this devastation, but specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. The difficulties that we face in life, said this last week, present us with unique opportunities to spread the gospel that might not be there otherwise. To declare the, the supremacy and supreme worth of Jesus when all is not right in the world. When all is not right in our lives, in our families. Michael Green in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, he says, he says it this way. He says, as early as Acts chapter 8, we find that it is not the apostles, but the quote-unquote amateur missionaries, those evicted from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution which followed Stephen's martyrdom, who took the gospel with them wherever they went. It was they who traveled along the coastal plain to Phoenicia, over the sea to Cyprus, or struck up north to Antioch. They were evangelists, just as many uh Just as much as any apostle was, indeed, it was they who took two revolutionary steps of preaching to Greeks who had no connection with Judaism and then with launching the Gentile mission from Antioch. He goes on to say, It was an unselfconscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere spreading the good news which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must often have been not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. And consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread." that Jesus's message and ministry reaches Samaria. And as a result, the entire city is filled with joy. Let me just, let me stop here for a second and point out something that I don't think can be overstated. Samaritans were considered to be the refuse of Jewish society. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It was Samaritans who opposed the rebuilding of the wall uh, around Jerusalem in Nehemiah and Ezra's day after the exile. It was Samaritans who built a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim where they worshiped. It was Samaritans who denied the validity of much of the Old Testament. It was Samaritans who went so far as to mix paganism and Judaism one of the greatest insults that, uh, in Jesus' life and ministry that the Jews could think to hurl at Jesus is found in John chapter 8, verse 48, where they call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. It's like, what can we attach to demon possession that would make the insult all the more glorious? And they decided, demon-possessed Samaritan. That'll do it. That's what we should call Jesus. That's how they felt about Samaritans. The hatred was so bad that Jews would, would go around Samaria on their way to Galilee, in order to avoid Samaritans altogether. Even going so far as to pray that God would not remember Samaritans in the resurrection. That's strong, right? But if you go back to Jesus's life in ministry, we know that it was Jesus who passed right through the heart of Samaria, John chapter four, offering salvation to a promiscuous Samaritan woman at a well. It was Jesus who healed a Samaritan leper on his way to his own impending death in Jerusalem. It was Jesus who made a Samaritan a hero in his incredibly famous parable of the good Samaritan. All these accounts declaring the global nature of God's rescue mission in Jesus Christ, that he died not only for Jews, but Samaritans. And now, here in Acts chapter 8, we see Samaria forever changed by the good news of Jesus Christ, the city filled with joy, in part, because Philip himself had been changed by the gospel, not viewing himself as superior to Samaritans, not regarding them as beyond the reach of God's grace, understanding that everyone is hopeless apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that no one person is more hopeless than any other person, that there's no limitation to God's mightiness to save, to rescue in Christ. So that, here's my prayer for Everyone in this room and everyone who's not in this room who listens into this podcast and everyone who doesn't even listen to the podcast but is a part of this church family, this is my prayer for all of you, myself included. I pray that, that the message and ministry of Jesus reaches your unbelieving family members through you, and there may be some unique opportunities with the holidays coming up, and that as a result, to use the language of verse 8, that there's all the more joy in your family, and that includes those in your family that most everyone else would write off as a, a lost cause. I pray that the message and ministry of Jesus reaches your unbelieving neighbors through you and that as a result, there's much joy in your neighborhood. And that includes those in your neighborhood that everyone else would write off. I pray that the message and ministry of Jesus reaches your unbelieving coworkers through you and that as a result, there's much joy in your workplace. And that includes those in your workplace that most everyone else would be inclined to write off. So that everywhere you go, my prayer is that there's an increase in joy, like we see here in Acts chapter 8, the kind of joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Because you can't stop, to use Michael Green's words, gossiping the gospel everywhere you go. Verse 9 goes on to introduce us to this character by the name of Simon. Interesting infusion of his story into this morning's passage. It says, In verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Everybody likes people like that, right? Apparently, these people did. They all paid attention to him, verse 10, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon's kind of a big shot among the the Samaritan people, we're told. He's a man whom many people think possesses divine power. And he had milked it for all it was worth, declaring his own greatness to the masses and receiving the praises of anyone who would declare his glory. All of a sudden, Philip comes along, performing signs and wonders and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of Simon's followers turn their marveling eyes from him to Jesus They turn their marveling hearts from him to Jesus so that Simon's power is eclipsed by the Spirit's power. It's that theme you see all throughout the book of Acts. Luke continues to show us that that there's no threat to the church or obstacle of growth that the Spirit of God cannot overcome, that there's no threat or obstacle that has any hope of keeping the gospel from spreading. We've seen the threat of persecution from the outside overcome as the apostles empowered by the Spirit stand up to the religious leaders We've seen the threat of hypocrisy from the inside overcome, evidence through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We've seen the two-headed threat of division and distraction overcome through the story of the widows in need and the establishment of new ministry infrastructure in chapter 6. We've seen martyrdom overcome now as the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem and her temple in the wake of Stephen's death. And now we see the the power of self-exalting sorcerers overcome as the spirit flexes and shows Simon's powers to be less impressive than the spirit's. Pretty amazing. We've seen the gospel rescue the most hard-hearted, religiously lost Jewish priests. And here we see the gospel rescue irreligiously lost Samaritans caught up in black magic because that's just what the gospel does. Verse 14 If you read this passage from start to finish, verses 4 through 25, what you see is there are a couple of theological conundrums that we have to deal with in a passage like this, one of which has to do with the question of whether Simon is even a Christian or not. We'll come back to that one in a second. The other of which has to do with the question of what to do with a group of people who are seemingly converted and yet have to wait for the apostles to ride into town on their camels and lay hands on them in order to receive the Holy Spirit. What do you do with that? There are a number of things that scholars have done with that. Some argue that not all Christians receive the Holy Spirit when they're converted and must later seek a spirit-filling experience afterwards and that that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. I'm not sure that jives very well with the Apostle Paul's words though in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 where he says anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And so others argue that um, maybe these Samaritan converts possessed a, me- a measure of the Spirit, but not the gifts of the Spirit, and that the apostles came to bestow the gifts of the Spirit on these new believers. But there's, there's really no language that gets at that kind of a specific focus either, right? It's not like we come out of this and we see the gifts of the Spirit miraculously at work in the church like we do in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. It's not as though people are lining up to receive their gifts one by one, going, Hey, man, I got the gift of teaching. What did you get? Oh, man, I got healing. You got to check this out. You know, like we don't get any sort of specific, uh, specific focus in terms of, of where this story's going that would lend itself to that. It's possible, but it seems like a little bit of a stretch. So that others would say that the Samaritans in this passage were not truly converted until the apostles showed up, that they truly became Christians at the laying on of the apostles' hands and then even that seems a little bit weird that Philip would baptize a bunch of people professing to believe who didn't yet truly believe. Which is why I'm inclined to, to lean in the direction of a great many scholars who actually believe this fits well in the broader narrative of the book of Acts, that, that this is a unique moment in redemptive history, that the falling of the Spirit on the Samaritans is very similar to what we see in Acts chapter two, the falling of the Spirit at Pentecost, this unique visible display of the Spirit's work as the gospel ripples out leaving Jerusalem and breaking into Samaria. A new stage in the, the progress of the gospel witness making its way to the end of the earth. To go back to that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus language. That under this view, what, what you see here in Acts chapter 8 is, is as repeatable as what you see at Pentecost itself. That as the gospel breaks through each of Jesus' concentric circles, going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Spirit confirms the inclusion of each new group of people, in this case, the despised Samaritans, which they themselves, perhaps, having grown accustomed to being so despised by those around them, needed their own assurance. And so what better way to to know that they're fully incorporated into the new covenant people of God, than to have the apostles whom Jesus had appointed lay hands on them in this moment in Acts chapter 8, uniting Jews and Samaritans by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. F.F. Bruce who holds to that view, says this. He says, The record of a Samaritan Pentecost implies that a new nucleus of the expanding community has been established so that the gospel could now radiate outwards from this new center of the Spirit's mission. It doesn't seem like Luke's hitting a pause button to teach a systematic theology of the Holy Spirit here. It seems like he's trying to make sense of, of this Broader narrative and how the gospel is going forth from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. Re- regardless of how you understand these verses, one thing that we can say is it's happening, right? The gospel is spreading just like Jesus said it would, dividing walls of hostility and hatred being broken down by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 tells us, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Uh oh. Saying, verse 19, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, good idea. No, that's not what Peter said. He said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Here's where we encounter the second theological conundrum in this morning's passage, the question of whether or not Simon is actually a Christian or not. He's so dazzled by by the visible display of the Spirit's power that he tries to buy that power for himself. In the words of one scholar, very sobering words, he says, Simon's narcotic of choice is power, and he seeks to buy some off of the apostles like someone trying to score meth in a back alley. He doesn't ask for the Holy Spirit himself. He asks for the power to bestow the Holy Spirit on others. He looks at the signs and wonders, yet fails to see that those very signs and wonders point to Jesus. In studying this passage, I found an illustration from John Piper's commentary on Acts chapter 8 to be incredibly helpful here. He says, The simplest way I can think of to illustrate what went wrong with Simon is an experience every mother of toddlers has had. Suppose you have a one-year-old child sitting on your lap and suddenly in the window, there's a beautiful bird and you hold out your hand to point at the bird and say, look at the bird. What does the child look at? He looks at your hand and the sign you're making with your fingers. He might even try to imitate the sign by putting out his index finger. He sees the sign. He's excited because you're excited. He joins in imitating the sign as best he can, but the problem is he never sees the bird. The whole point of the sign is missed. Piper goes on to say, that is what happened to Simon the magician here in Acts chapter eight. He saw the signs that Philip was doing. They were better than his own magical signs. He got excited about them. He followed Philip around and wanted to imitate them, but he never saw the bird in the window. He never saw the ugliness of his own sin, the need for repentance, and the glory of Christ in the gospel who forgives and makes new and clean. That Simon is caught up in the, the, the glory of signs and wonders and he manage, manages to miss the glory of Christ. He, he's fixated on the pointing hand and he fails to see the beautiful bird right outside the window. Seeing the glory of power, but missing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to use Paul's language of 2 Corinthians 4. That there's an actual term, I don't use it a lot, sounds kind of nerdy, a term known as simony that's actually been around since this story happened a couple thousand years ago, and it's carried throughout church history. W.A. Criswell, in his commentary, says, the church became a part of the state at the time of Constantine's conversion. Simony was already practiced, but it increased in the buying of ecclesiastical office and benefits. A bishop's office could be bought for so much money. The same was true of an archbishop's office, a cardinal's hat, and ecclesiastical living in parishes and in monasteries. Simony finally gave rise to the Reformation when all over Europe indulgences were sold in order to get money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. The, the, the reason Protestantism even exists is because the great Martin Luther saw the ugliness of simony all around him and he decided to stand up to it. Unless we think that it went away about 500 years, never to return, it's present in the world today. Every time someone seeks spiritual power in the name of self-promotion, whether it be pastors living off the high of their platform or those engaging in serving and leadership opportunities for, for the status and recognition that they afford, even those who pursue godliness in an effort to impress other people, that's simony. Asking God to sign the check for our idols is simony. Participating in a local church as a means of business networking, which happens in the American South, that's simony too. That God cannot be bought, Peter's arguing here, nor can the gifts that he freely bestows upon his sons and daughters. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Acts chapter eight, says this, he says, this is subtle and a great warning to us all, Some of us feel that we need approval in order to have happiness and value. So we may appear to quote unquote convert, but we may be getting into Christianity just to get this nice group of people to love and approve of us. So our our real quote unquote salvation is not Christ, but the approval of other Christians. There has been no real heart change, no real abandoning of our good works for faith in Christ's work for us. We are just doing the old self salvation in a new way. He goes on to say, or here's another example, closer to Simon's pattern. Some of us feel that we need power over others in order to have happiness and value. We may always feel that we need to be running things, be telling others what to do. So we may appear to quote unquote convert, but we may be getting into Christianity just because we see a new place where we can run things and pontificate and tell people how they ought to live. So our real quote unquote salvation is not Christ, but power over others. There has been no real heart change no real abandoning our good works for faith in Christ's work for us. We are just doing the old self-salvation in a new way. That's incredibly sobering. That a person can view their conversion as having all the same deep-seated desires they had before, except now those desires are met by Jesus. This, this declaration, I've always wanted to fall in love and I've searched for it everywhere and I couldn't find it. But, but now I know that Jesus is the way. And so I sing to him with everything that I have because I know that he'll bring me someone. That's not the new birth. Right? That's using Jesus to write the check for the functional savior of love and companionship, which is why so many people, quote unquote, walk away from the faith when Jesus refuses to sign that check. Or maybe even closer to home, For us in the the American South, I don't want to go to hell. So I've done everything I can in a number of ways to escape that eternal destiny, nothing seeming to work out well. But now I know that Jesus is the way. And so I sing to him with everything I have, knowing that he's my get out of hell free card. Does it take a regenerate heart? Does it take the new birth to want to escape hell? I don't think so. Does it take a regenerate heart to want a pain free, misery free eternity? There are people all over the world who want that and and who would be happy for Jesus to write the check for heaven and perfectly content if Jesus weren't a participant in heaven. And they will not be in heaven. Focusing on the, the pointing hand, missing the beautiful bird all the while, longing for things that Jesus can offer, somehow without longing for Jesus Christ himself. And it really is a hard issue. Notice that Peter traces it back to Simon's heart, which is why he says you need to repent. Your heart's not right with God. It's filled with wickedness in the bond of iniquity. That's strong language in verses 20 through 23, such that it's caused a great many number of scholars to conclude that Simon was never truly a Christian, that he made a disingenuous profession of faith, that unlike the apostles who fixed their eyes on Jesus, And received his power as a result, that Simon fixed his eyes on power and missed Jesus in all of it. Verse 24 tells us that Simon responded. He answered, Pray for me to the Lord that none of what you have said may come upon me. We don't know if he's a Christian, we don't know if he truly repented. Maybe he really did become a Christian when Philip showed up on the scene. Maybe the, maybe the root idol of power ran so deep in his life that it just wasn't going to be fully uprooted overnight. Maybe his request to buy the power of the Holy Spirit was, was the blundering request of a brand new Christian. Maybe he really did repent. Maybe he was so overwhelmed with, with sorrow over his sin that... He was left speechless before the Lord, asking Peter to pray for him in this moment of brokenness and contrition. We, we just don't know. It's possible that his faith was disingenuous. Maybe he saw an opportunity to pursue his own vainglory, riding the coattails of a religious movement. Wouldn't be the first time. Taking on the posture, according to one scholar, if you can't beat him, them, join them. Like That power's better than mine. Can I ride the coattails of this for my own glory now? You see this before in Jesus' ministry, belief absent of salvation, non-saving belief, you might say. John chapter 2, verse 23, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man that there's this quote-unquote believing on the basis of signs and miracles similar to what Simon sees in Philip's ministry, that Jesus could see the hearts of these quote-unquote believing people were not genuine. The Puritans declared Simon to be what they called a false professor. Many in the early church even went on to write that Simon Simon went on to become a heretic. He was actually even given the title, the father of all heretics, by some. And we're talking about the writings of guys like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Jerome. We're talking about big-hitting early church fathers, historians, and apologists. Ultimately, we don't know. One thing we can be sure of, again, the gospel continues to spread, changing lives and filling cities with joy. Look at verse 25, how this morning's passage closes. It says, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they, Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So they don't wait till they get back to Jerusalem to share Jesus. They, they pull off at every rest stop sharing the gospel everywhere they go. Gossiping the gospel, you might say. I don't know about you, but I personally find this story, this morning's passage to be both incredibly Encouraging and incredibly sobering. mean, on the one hand, it's sobering to think that simony is all around us, perhaps even deeply rooted within us. Like, there's, there's a danger of living in, in a context, in a subculture, in which it's actually beneficial to be part of the church, which, welcome to the American South, it is. Like, you can establish better business connections by being a part of a church rather than not. You can solidify your reputation as someone trustworthy just by putting on a suit and tie on a Sunday morning. You can get your kids into certain Christian private schools that you wouldn't be able to if you weren't a member of a church. That the benefits of being a part of a church societally can blur the lines between truth and pretense, between real love for Jesus and play acting. Not only that, In the 21st century American church, we live in a time and place in which it's incredibly easy to be enamored with things that point to Jesus and somehow fail to be enamored with Jesus himself in the midst of all of it. Coming back to that that word picture of the hand pointing to the beautiful bird outside the window, think about this. It's possible to listen to a sermon and be impressed with the sermon maybe even ourselves, because we know more after having listened to the sermon than we did before we listened to the sermon and somehow fail to be impressed with Jesus as we walk away from the sermon. Is that not crazy? Same thing with Christian conferences, Christian books, Christian podcasts. And here's a bizarre addition, particularly over the last 20, 30 years, Christian leadership has actually contributed to the problem as she sought to bedazzle the glove, to bedazzle the hand so that we miss seeing the bird out the window all the more easily, making it harder to look on the other side of the window. Look at our programs. Look at the arrangement of our band. Look at our booming kids ministry. None of those things bad things, right? But here's my prayer. I got a lot of prayers coming out of this morning's passage. Here's my next one. I pray that people walk away from our programs, ultimately declaring not what a great program, but what a great Christ. I pray that people walk away from our Sunday gatherings, ultimately declaring not what a great group of musicians, but what a great Christ that they sing about. I pray that our little ones walk away from that kids' ministry, ultimately Uh, declaring not what a great kids' ministry, but what a great Christ that that great kids' ministry points me to. It it wasn't enough for Simon that the crowds declared his greatness. He had to declare his own greatness and glory himself. He had to join in, caught up in this empty chase of self-exaltation, addicted to the narcotic of power as a means of adoration. In contrast, which Luke does throughout the entire book of Acts, it's all about contrast, right? Right? In contrast, Philip and Peter and John and the rest of Jesus' followers, they actually knew the joy of being free from the empty chase of self-exaltation. They knew the joy of sobriety from from those narcotics. The joy of declaring the greatness of another, namely Jesus Christ. The joy of hearing the crowd sing his praises, not their own. That's my prayer for us as a church, that, that we're not afraid to ask the question are there ways in which I'm seeking to use Jesus and or his church to get people to declare my greatness? That we would be willing to hit the pause button and ask questions like that, real honest questions like that. That we're quick to confess and repent in those moments. That we, that we never cease to be amazed by Jesus. That we never cease to be impressed with his goodness, glory, and grace. That we see beyond the pointing hand to that which is on the other side of the window that we we find ourselves more and more free from the empty chase of self-exaltation, free from the empty chase of of power and wealth and self-acclaim, such that we're free to actually serve and lead so that more and more people might say that Jesus is great, not us. Because he is. If you're a Christian, you know that. You know that it's Jesus who truly is great. The spotless lamb of God slayed for sinners like you and me like the Samaritans, like Simon, apart from Jesus, we, every one of us in this room would all be hopeless, amen? Like, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. I don't know about you, I'm glad that Jesus died for idolaters, because I'm one. I'm glad that Jesus died for fame junkies, because I'm one. If you're not a Christian, man, you need to know this Jesus, You need to taste the freedom and joy that comes in seeing and savoring Him and getting caught up in singing His praises and participating in causing others to sing His praises, to be released from that empty chase. And all you have to do is bring your sin and the empty hands of faith to the foot of the cross to know the joy that the city of Samaria tasted that day. Coming back to Simon. The dude got a lot of things wrong in this morning's passage, right? We can all agree to that. One good thing that we can say about Simon, he saw something so glorious that he wanted to buy it. He saw people transformed, lives turned upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. He saw people's perspectives on life and money and power and career change forever. He saw people filled with the Spirit's power He saw a city that for so long had marveled at black magic, now filled with joy as they marveled at Jesus. Because that's what Jesus does, right? He changes people. He changes families. He changes neighborhoods. He changes workplaces. He changes entire cities. And it happens by his grace as we plead with the Spirit to move mightily in us and through us, and as we proclaim the good news of Jesus wherever we go, gossiping the gospel and putting Christ on display, not ourselves.